Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, and today I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Peter Liu. How are you doing, Peter? I'm good. It's 2023. First episode of 2023. Dang, (laughs) things feel so different on this side of the... No, no, it's still Not early really. December it's, for us, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's exciting. Hey, we made it, you know? Uh, we, we're we recording this slightly in advance of New Year's, so, you know, we, <laughs> we don't know if we made it, we but like made the podcast it, made it. If you're listening yeah, to this, we made it. Made it. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so if we didn't make it, hopefully the podcast would not come out and we take a break, but, uh, you know. All right. Anyways, but yeah, I'm go- I'm doing well. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I we're both going to take a couple weeks off, so that's crazy. Yes. Absolutely. So we're recording this right before the holidays, before the end of the year. And yeah, we were just talking before we started recording and we both have about two solid weeks blocked off. We have kind of different plans for the break. Me, I'm looking forward to two solid weeks of staycation, but that's also kind of a good thing, you know, just kind of hibernate inside, watch a lot of movies. When the weather warms up just a little bit, play outside in the snow with the dog and the kids, do some sledding and stuff like that. What are you doing, Peter? Well, so we're taking two weeks off, but the first half, my mother-in-law is coming in town for uh, Christmas and uh, we'll do that. And then I convinced them to go on a cruise, which is their, my wife and our daughter, obviously she's less than two, and my mother-in-law's first cruise ever. They're super against it, but we're going to go. Wow. Um, we'll see how, we'll see what happens. So yeah, there's a chance. Uh, well, maybe on the next episode, I'll give an update on whether we survived or not. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. <laughs> whether we'll be ever going back again. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be fun. I'm sure you're going to have lasting memories of any some type. <laughs> uh, you will definitely have some stories to tell about the trip. Um, yeah. I'm kind of jealous because at least it will be warm and sunny where you are. It will be warm. It will be warm. I think, you know, I've, I used to go on cruises as, as a kid and I loved them, but I've not been on one in my adult life. As like adults, my wife and I really didn't see the appeal of going on a cruise. But after our last trip to uh, Mexico, and part for conferences, like Emma just like lost her mind at every restaurant is like, ugh. so we thought maybe cruises will be easier um, as long as none of us get sick because then this will be the only and last cruise of her life. Yeah. Well, f- fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll so, so everyone in the audience, stay tuned uh, for the next oh, yeah. episode and you'll hear an update <laughs> about how this all went. <laughs> but, you know, obviously this is kind of the holiday time of year. Anything that you guys normally do for the holidays, sort of Lou like family traditions. traditions? Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, we celebrate Christmas, uh, you know, so Christmas tree and I'm trying to really not bring in this uh, thing I've heard of this elf on the shelf thing, which I did not do as a kid. And I do not plan on bringing that into our household. But there's many things I thought I would never do that I am doing currently after we had a child. So we'll see. (laughs) How about you guys? Uh, So we celebrate Hanukkah. So we're in the middle of Hanukkah celebrations. And we don't have a huge number of traditions because our extended family lives quite a distance away. But Mm. we typically, we make latkes for people Mm. in the audience that know what those are, like uh, fried potato pancakes. They're really good, really greasy, but always fun. And then there's obviously eight nights of presents, which the kids get super excited about. My wife bought matching pajamas for the boys and our dog oh and parents and and for you uh no no no. uh okay okay. so (laughs) i don't have a hard rule against the matching pajama thing but i'm not a huge fan and we did it a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and i think she she realized that i wasn't super enthusiastic about it (laughs) and so she just got it for the kids and the dog but (laughs) our dog poor our poor dog we managed to get the picture of the kids with the dog with their matching pajamas, but the dog was so sad the entire time <laughs> that the pajamas oh, were on him. It was kind God. of like it's kind of like when the dogs have the cone of shame because yeah, they, they had yeah, surgery. Yeah, yeah. He he just seemed so dejected. He didn't want to <sighs> run or play or do anything until we took the pajamas off, and then he was his usual self. So he is not See, big on clothing. That's even worse. That's so much worse than if the dog was angry and just like trying to tear it off. <laughs> no. Uh, it just sad, sad dog is. Yeah. It felt worse. like, what did we do 
to the dog. I know. <laughs> we, we broke our dog because we wanted this picture. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, he, he's geez. over it now. He's over it now. But but yeah, so those are the, those are the traditions. And of course, we like candles and things like that. But those are the main traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we could talk about holiday and vacation. We're still we're very clearly on break mode. But but we have yes. an episode to to introduce today, and it's a great mm-hmm. one because you know we we had a chance to talk to Dr. Matthew Riley, who's a community based uh, pediatric GI doc, and we wanted to cover the topic of community based practice because many of us, so you know myself, Peter, Jen, uh, tomorrow, we all work in academic institutions. We all did our fellowships in academic institutions and then ended up staying in academic institutions. But for many of our listeners, fellows, trainees, that may not be the path forward. They may end up in community practice. And uh, we thought it was really important to cover that perspective and cover some of the issues, some of the things uh, that you might want to think about when considering a career in community-based practice. You know, what can you expect? What what are the non-medical aspects that you need to work through? And uh, Dr. Riley has a wealth of experience in the area, and we thought it would be great to have him on to talk about it. Yeah. So, I remember he in one of my fellows conferences, he was the private practice slash community practice representative. So, it's great to talk to him again. Dr. Riley, he is a community-based pediatric GI in Portland, as Jason said. I think he has a unique perspective because, you know, he trained at Stanford, a large academic institution. And as he describes, you know, he eventually found his way to a small private practice, which he helped to grow. And then more recently transitioned to another kind of community hospital-based practice. So we had a great time talking to him, kind of picking his brain about all these different choices and benefits, pros and cons. So um, we're excited to have you guys hear it for the first episode of 2023. Absolutely. On to the show. So, Dr. Riley, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on Bowsounds today. Absolutely. And we're going to get started with what some of our guests find the most challenging question. Uh, For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Uh, I actually actually wrote this one out. (laughs) Nice. Uh, (laughs) A lot of people uh, have crib notes. Right. (laughs) So, uh, I am a middle-aged gay dad working as a pediatric gastroenterologist in Portland, Oregon, with a focus on providing highly reliable clinical care. Awesome. Okay. I think you stuck the landing. Yes. (laughs) No one actually keeps it one sentence. That's actually really good. (laughs) I I only gave myself one comma, too. Yeah. One one supporting clause. Yeah. There there weren't a whole lot of parentheses and codicils and and added clauses. That was great. That was great. And you really packed a lot in there. So our second question, also kind of like a personal question. So, okay. Tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend to us. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and they both said it had had a theme that might come up a few times during this session. But one of them was actually, uh, I was very excited to think about the return to live theater. So two days after the initial COVID lockdown happened here, I had theater tickets to an incredible show that was made, adapted from one of my favorite books called The Curious Instance of the Dog in the Mm -hmm. Nighttime. And it was the first show. I was so lucky our theater company here in Portland kept it. So when they started live shows, uh, it was part of their season package. So I I got the season package and that was the first show. So it, it was sort of full circle. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, it's a novel by Mark Haddon. It's been adapted into a play by Simon Stevens and essentially is the sort of the point of view of a 15 year old neurodivergent uh, young man in England solving a canine murder mystery. And so, uh, yeah, the book is just absolutely amazing. I would recommend great book. anybody. The show is really great. And then of the shows I was watching, the only one that I was willing to admit having watched <laughs> that I thought had any redeeming qualities was similar is Love on the Spectrum. Oh, yes. Lovely Netflix show. Mm-hmm. They did their first season in Australia and the second season actually is actually set in the United States and again follows multiple 
mostly young adults on the uh, autism spectrum going through dating and coaching and relationships. And uh, yeah, no, I just I just find them both really, really fascinating to really dive into that neuroatypical neurodivergent population and kind of really get a sense of what what life is like, especially as we often, I think, see a lot of those kids in early childhood, but really thinking about those kids as teenagers and as they move out of our pediatric realm, what, what life looks like. So I also love love on the spectrum. What do you like better, though, Australia version or U.S. Oh. version? Oh, I'm a sucker for an Italian uh, accent. So the Australian <laughs> version is pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I agree. Something about it, it just it's not there. <laughs> um, but anyways, I love that show, too. Oh, it's 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 like in, in reality, it's like their emotions are not any different than like our emotions. It's just they can't keep it in. It's like everything just comes out. Right. Um, it's sort of the same, the same challenges and awkwardness that just <laughs> amplified, right? Just like exactly. so many things. I, I've, I've watched a couple episodes and I just love the, um, you get to see someone's internal dialogue made external because yeah, that yeah. filter is gone. And so sometimes, or I shouldn't say it's gone, but sometimes is, is different. And so sometimes there's that kind of very frank and direct communication that you don't expect in certain situations. Uh, and then that gets received also in, in a way that might go differently with somebody else. And, and it's just amazing to watch it all play out. And you're right, Matthew, like you don't think about your pediatric patients, you, you know, even the teenagers being out there in the dating world. And yet here you get to see them, uh, those other aspects of their lives play out. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, that sense of them learning self-advocacy. And, and I think from the, you know, the, and just you sort of see that impact in both of those, the show and the, and the series, you really also get a sense of the impact that this diagnosis and this condition has had on the, on the family. I mean, the, you sort of see, you know, see the, the parents' side of it too, the, the, and, and hearing from them how far these, these young people have come and hearing a little bit of their backstory and seeing what they're what they're doing now is so amazing. We're like, you know, again, we tend to see these kids early on when the struggle is just so astronomically uphill. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's just it's sort of it's heartwarming, and it, I think it's just a good reflection of humanity, and maybe in a little selfish way, like you know, I can I have my own fun quirks too, and it also <laughs> right. makes me normalize that a little bit. You know, like yeah, mm -hmm. one of my favorite words is misophonia. I'm like, so I always tell all the patients, I'm like, the crinkly paper is like my nemesis in medicine. If I knew there was going to be crinkly paper exam table involved in medicine, I probably never would have gotten into it. It drives me bonkers. So I can recognize like, wow, I'm having this real, real sensory experience right now that is affecting my life and my ability to focus. And I'm like, let's just get rid of the paper, you know? And, uh, and oh, being upfront man. about that, you know, I don't, have to, I don't have to bear through it. I can actually self-advocate and make the paper go away. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's awesome that you own oh, it. I love though. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. No, I, I really like those recommendations. And and The Curious Incident is is just an awesome book. I, I definitely second that for sure. Like all of our episodes, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about books and movies and shows and things like that. Uh, but we do have a topic today, and we had wanted to talk about working as a pediatric gastroenterologist, but outside of an academic center. And mainly that's because most of us train in academic centers. We have our mentors who work in academic centers as trainees. And people listening to this podcast, most of our experiences around pediatric gastroenterologists working in academic centers. And so we really wanted to share a different experience, share what life is like working outside of an academic center and kind of explore the concept of, of community or private practice as a pediatric gastroenterologist. So can you tell us a little bit about your path going from training in an academic center to where you're working now and, and what, how that all played out and what motivated you to make the choices that you've made along the way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it is it is really an important topic to remember that we you know, we all get sort of thrust into this academic world from very early on and just keep staying there. You know, I joke to people, I just I was I was good at school, so I just kept going. Right. And you just keep going and going and going until there's nowhere left to go. And you're like, wait a second, I'm in my thirties and I have to get a job. What is this about? Um why was this a good idea? And I always sort of go back to what my initial internal motivations were. And I feel like that's sort of been a driving force. So I have a little 
maybe odd background or maybe different background from most people going into medicine. You know, I went to, um, a, you know, a liberal arts college. I went to Dartmouth on the East Coast being a native Californian. That was kind of odd to begin with. No one ever leaves California. And then I decided I was going to major in French and linguistics, which I'm not sure how many pre-med people do that, and then decided to pursue pre-med classes at the same time. And there were just lots of interests I had at the time. And I felt like they were, in my head, were always tied together in terms of understanding language, understanding stories, understanding cultural differences, being the, the person who's not the cultural norm. So putting myself in situations where I was not the one whose default answer was correct. And I would usually be the one whose default answer was incorrect, <laughs> trying to figure out just how to communicate or live in, in a different culture. I did a couple of um, study abroad programs. And one of the things I always remember to this day is one of my college jobs was I was actually a teaching assistant at the university preschool. So I would wow. ride my bike <laughs> after my classes awesome. to go hang out with like, preschoolers <laughs> in the afternoon. It was, that, it was pretty amazing. That That is pre-residency in pediatrics training. <laughs> Exactly. Right there, even before medical school. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I was like, this is my normal, my well child rotation. I think, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I already did that. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, just that idea of like, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. Like, this is just a fun way to spend my time and really entering into those kids' world. Right. And I thought, wow, these are a pretty happy bunch of kids and this is pretty fun. Like, what could I do to help that along? And then I finally decided on, on medicine as that path. And so, uh, I always knew I was going to go into pediatrics. Like if, if I had finished med school and they said, nope, all those pediatric jobs are full. You have to see grownups. I, I just would have taken my MD degree and gone home. And I'll, do, I'll do something else. <laughs> and so just sort of using that as, as that core. It's like, where can I, where can I benefit kids the most and, and continue to have fun? And so I was really attracted. I went back to the West Coast, Oregon for medical school at Oregon Health Sciences University. And at that time, I really was focused on probably being a primary care pediatrician. And so this was a really good program for primary care. And I ended up staying for residency. And I, I will tell people, I, I always wanted to be in a place where I was the main focus. So you know, I went to an undergrad college where it was really all about undergraduate education. And I went to a residency program where it was all about the residents. We had very few fellows. That just wasn't who ran the show. And then I pretty quickly figured out that I was probably not cut out for primary pediatrics that I liked more hospital-based medicine. I liked procedures. I was always one, I was always the person signing up for whatever little minor procedure there might be and found I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And so it actually came down to oncology or gastroenterology. And in my head, I was thinking, is this a career I want of a very small number of very intense relationships or a larger number of less intense relationships? And still have that procedural aspect, that aspect of inpatient and outpatient, kind of just being everywhere. And uh, yeah, I decided just from an emotional stability standpoint, I just thought gastroenterology was a, a better fit. And so then I went to California. And at that time, there was still sort of a joint program with Stanford and UCSF. So I did my all my clinical work at Stanford and then used my research time with mentors from UCSF, which was, again, just a really great experience of taking all those pieces you can along the way, right? And I feel like as a, you know, a trainee or, you know, a student or a trainee along the way, that's what you're really trying to do, right? Is just gather all these best pieces you can from the people around you. And so when I left Oregon, really that the plan was, yeah, yeah, I was going to go off to fellowship and then come back and go to Oregon and take an academic job and you know, sort of what I think we'd call like a clinician educator these days. Uh, that was the that was the plan. When I left Oregon, there was like many places, like a six-month wait list to get in for any sort of routine GI issue. And I thought, wow, here's a need, right? Here's something I love doing. I think it's going to be really interesting, fun, and there's a need to fill. And there's a community that, that needs that. Um, they hadn't been successfully recruiting any people long-term for many, many years. And I thought, wow, that'd be a really great place to come back to and come full circle. When it came time to apply for jobs, it turned out there wasn't a job. <laughs> so they had actually filled the one open position they had or like right, were right in the middle of filling it. There'd been some leadership changes. So everyone I had, that had known me during my residency period was gone, essentially. So wow. <laughs> uh, I sort of went knocking on a closed door. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. I was, I was supposed to come back. So yeah, so sort of had to, had to pivot uh, a bit. And then looked at a variety of positions, including, again, sort of clinician educator type jobs, we call them now at, at smaller programs, and then a true hospital-based job. And then, as it turned out, Portland's kind of a funny place for pediatrics. So we have a university. There is what, you, what we called in the day our community hospital or community rotation when I was a resident. 
So a non-academic hospital that did uh, pediatrics, including subspecialty pediatrics. So I'd actually done an elective rotation with the two pediatric gastroenterologists at the non-academic children's hospital in Portland as well. So I started talking with them and they had had the same issues. It was just hard to recruit people. And so for a lot of reasons to come back to Oregon and and family issues and logistics, I ended up taking that job, which I tell people, (laughs) told people at the Bellows Conference, never take this job. If you get this job offer, do not take this job offer. So it was basically two guys that they'd been in practice and sort of just shared an office and shared bills. And that was about it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm old. So this is like 2005 at this point. So a mile back. And it was sort of a literally like deal on a napkin and a handshake kind of job offer. It was like, it'll work out. It'll be fine. <laughs> and I needed a job. So <laughs> I needed to be in Oregon. So I said, okay. So there was still some teaching. So there were residents rotating through. And so I thought, okay, well, there's still going to be that opportunity. The level of care was honestly pretty similar. So, and I was never a big basic science research person, as you might imagine from my story. So that wasn't a big loss to me. So yeah, so I took the job, you know, at a pretty big leap of faith and set up shop and just started off. And pretty much any time anyone had any opportunity to talk, I'd say, yes, Judge, if you'll turn the mic on for me, I'll show up. So uh, any lectures, lectures, anything anybody wanted, I'd, I'd show up. And so that kind of filled up my, my education bucket that I enjoy and continue to enjoy. And, you know, I think early out out of training, there's still so much to be done, right? I think there's so much about not only seeing everything, but seeing everything a hundred times and doing it 200 times and just developing that sort of your personal practice style, how you work through problems, setting up education materials. Again, this is back before, I think that this predated GI kids. So there weren't a lot of, there was not a lot of educational materials out there, not as, as much support as there is today. So I spent a lot of time um, just doing that and just going back to the idea that, you know, why did I become a doctor? I went, I became a doctor to take care of kids. That's what I was doing. And so that felt right. And then on the business end, right? So now I'm in a, what was essentially an office sharing situation. And then we came to sort of an agreement that there'd need to be an actual private practice structure around that, which is a whole other conversation and something to explore. But I, I think the overwhelming thing for me was doing something I liked, making sure it was benefiting kids. Being a doctor, that's, I went into, I, you know, I, I went into this for, for clinical care to begin with and, and that's what I ended up doing. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's all kind of worked out. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I think, so the rest of our conversation kind of breaks down, you know, some of those differences maybe from like a big academic program to like a, maybe a potentially smaller community program or like a true private practice, but I guess starting from the very basic. So in that practice that you first started out in, you and two partners setting up this like private practice. What was your, I, I know that you said you would volunteer to give talks and things like that, but what was like your typical week? I mean, was it similar what, to what you would say like an academic GI doc does, or are there some key differences there? What was your, your week like? Yeah. So when I first started, I didn't have really any administrative duty. So it was just really mostly eight to five. So get there, get there as early as I needed to get there to round on any patients who were in the hospital. I, I used to joke, I, I got into short bowel syndrome mostly because the I each of us would take consults a certain day of the week and I was always Monday. And so the neonatologist would always wait till Mondays to call for these consults. So like, oh, we have this patient They've been here for three months and we're sending them home on TPN on Thursday. Can you come see them? And they'd always call on Monday. <laughs> so I, yeah. I was like, guys, you, you need to start calling on different days. <laughs> you're, you're, you're killing me. Uh, and then we'd keep our own patients. So we would round on our, our own patients. Once they were yours, they were yours. And so it's like getting, I was getting to the hospital like 630 in the morning to, to round and then do a full clinic. I'm like, you, you got to stop calling on Monday. I feel like the uh, two partners definitely set you up as the Monday person. Yeah, I know? think they knew this. I think they definitely right. knew the drill before I came. So yeah, you so, you know, round in the hospital and our office was basically attached. It was, you know, you didn't have to go outside to get to the office. It was essentially down the hall from the pediatric floor. Uh, and then, yeah, then go to clinic and see patients all day and, and go home, try to get paperwork and then off you go. So, and then I had half a day of procedures once a week, which I think my procedure day for like forever has always been Tuesday for some reason. Yeah. And that was it, you know, and in the beginning, it was just about seeing this big backlog of patients and trying to get people in and sort of prove your worth and be efficient and 
bring in revenue to the practice. And that was really it. I guess just, to, and then like, as you, you mentioned, like at some point early on, you're like, we need to have a true like framework around this rather than just a handshake deal. Yeah. I mean, did it eventually evolve to where you were doing some more administrative work or did you have to hire somebody? Yeah. How did that evolve over time? Yeah. So they, they had a pre-existing staff. So they had an office manager, receptionist, a medical assistant. It was a pretty, pretty bare bones staff. I literally bought the how to incorporate your business for dummies. Like <laughs> for real these awesome. bought, bought that book. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. So in, in Oregon, it, it makes sense for something like this to create a limited liability corporation. Mm-hmm. And so it's just about filing paperwork and coming up with a name for the practice and a logo and a, you know, a website was like a new concept or, you know, having a presence on social media and was pretty new back in the day. So it's just creating a small business at the end of right, the day, right. you know, and I think we started having a little more involvement from uh, as the years went by from making sure we had an accountant that we liked and who was reliable and good and making sure we had a lawyer who was involved and available you know, and sort of just beefing up the team a little bit. And then the idea of having group health insurance was a new idea, you know, because they were just basically, they were both just self-employed. And so I'm like, you know, it's going to be pretty tough to recruit more people without like a benefits package, (laughs) you know, so going through that process of shopping and and setting up group retirement and group medical and dental liability, all those things. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, again, very steep learning curve, but the, the pace was fairly slow. These weren't things that were immediate needs, but were really, you know, sort of longer term business development projects. So that's a really good segue because besides the incorporate your business for dummies resource, which, you know, I've had those dummies books, they're really useful. Um, (laughs) But besides that, going through that process over the time that it took, and since then, you've probably picked up some non-clinical, non- education, teaching related skills that were sort of new skills to you. What were those skills that you have developed as you kind of navigated that particular business transition or or this idea of being in private practice? What, what are some of the skills that you built and what were other sources of help or mentorship around that? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you view this set of skills, like you said, you sort of have your physician set of skills and then you suddenly need these small business owner set of skills. And yeah, I mean, it was just using online resources, using books, using friends who actually worked outside of medicine was really useful, who actually worked in the business world of how things actually work. Um yeah, it was interesting, you know, even going through something as silly as it sounds, but like optimizing Google Analytics. You know, going through and making sure that you've actually set up your website correctly. And again, a lot of this is just online tutorials and a bit of trial and error. And just, again, talking to people who are outside of medicine, who I think are always amazed at how smart doctors are, but not on the business side. <laughs> right. For sure. So, I mean, I think that the basic knowledge was in the realm of the business world, pretty basic at the end of the day, and, you know, and, and definitely in terms of, you know, so we manage our own staff. So we're basically, we're also the HR department, which is a whole other set of knowledge, you know, like our medical association, the Oregon Medical Association it does have a lot of resources. And, you know, what I think is interesting is this is that the setting I'm talking about where I started is pretty unusual in pediatric gastroenterology and pediatric subspecialties. It's very, very common in the world of medicine in general. You know, there are plenty of resources typically from like your, again, local medical association or large organizations, the AMA, those sort of things where these are questions that practitioners and physicians are solving and asking every single day. We don't get a lot of exposure to them in our specific training, but this isn't new new knowledge. There are answers out there. Yeah. yeah. If you look at the things that you work through, what would you say are, you know, one or two or three of the big potential pitfalls, things that you managed to navigate either successfully or mostly successfully that could have gone worse or, or bad things that you managed to work through? Like what are the big pitfalls yeah. that people need to be aware of? Yeah. I think that one of the most difficult pieces, I think, in general for any small business and, and particularly in, in medicine and not having specific business training is human resources. It is a very specific skill set. You know, when you think about people who manage large HR departments who have these skills, this is years of training these people have to do that job well, how to interview people well, how to post jo- how to post a job effectively how to you know screen applicants again interview hire and retain people and how to not retain people who are not fitting with the team and i think that's always tough especially when you have a very small team is how to identify people who are actually not being a good team member and i think there's always that that 
push and pull of, well, well, we have somebody in the seat, but sometimes it might be better having an empty seat than having the wrong person in the seat. Right. Um, and I think that's always really challenging. And again, running a small business with people who, you know, it, this was a small group and you have to make decision, decisions collectively. And it's often difficult and no one necessarily, you know, no one has the, the time and the bandwidth to be wanting to do this all day. Like this is no one's primary job. This is the part you're sort of doing weekends and evenings on top of. And so, yeah, I think that's really difficult position to be in when you just, you know, you want to be done. You got your, you, got, you saw your patients, you got your charting done. I want to be finished. And like, oh, wait, there's another like 10, 50% of the work you still need to do can be pretty challenging. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm, one of the things I'm very happy in my current position is no longer doing HR management. Yeah. Everyone has yeah. the least favorite aspect of their job. And sounds like that's <laughs> one of yours, probably for very yes, good I mean, reasons. It's just, it's just such a full-time job at the end of the day that, you know, it's that part of the job that requires, I think, the most communication, the most subtlety. And you're already doing that, you know, as a physician, you're already spending mm -hmm. these intense moments with people all day long. And then to sort of reboot and do that with your staff, I, I think it's just it's just a lot to ask of, of somebody. And kind of just for for me as like an academic GI doc thinking about that, I feel like you're already doing the work of like several people, you know, like all these different roles. You mentioned though, you know, you have this passion for education. So when you have a special interest like that, is there room for that like in a more private practice model? I mean, I think many of us have this image of like, you know, just seeing patients all day and then... Like, how do you develop or how do you make time for some of those other interests you might have? Yeah, you know, I, I always say I really do general pediatric gastroenterology, which again, my friends outside of medicine are like, you already are super specialized. What do you do? I'm like, oh right, yeah, no. Right. <laughs> so many things I don't do, right? And I think for me, there have been some areas that have become areas of focus that were either... Some of them, dri again, driven by need and some of them driven by, by opportunity or potentially um, interest. Like one of the things that, com that comes up again for my theme is after I'd been in working in practice for a few years, we were actually, our practice was actually approached by the Northwest Autism Foundation. And this was sort of in the Wakefield era. So there was lots going on with these families, with these kids, lots of confusion, lots of people seeking care, wanting to have more care in terms of of sort of gut health, GI things, that, that relationship between GI conditions and, and behavioral aspects of that. And so they actually had, a, had approached our group and said, hey, we'd really like to be able to list somebody in our community as a resource for these families because we're hearing from families that they're traveling you know, across the country to see people who are really offering them not good care at the end of the day. You know, these kids were getting, you know, at that time, chelation was a, was a big thing. Yeah. So, so they were like, you know, we're hearing this from families, you know, this, they're really a patient advocacy group. And they said, we'd really like to see if we could keep them in state and have somebody who's willing to see these families and take a more rational approach to it. And so, you know, it's one of those things that was not on my radar, but, you know, there was an ask. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, sure. And they actually sponsored me to go spend some time with Tim Bowie at Boston Children's, met <clears throat> with him for a little bit and sort of go down that road. And, and I worked with them for several years, was on their board. And so again, it was, it was definitely this interest. And, you know, I ended up seeing a lot of families because of that, you know, you sort of, your name gets out there pretty quickly. You know, I think luckily we've come a long way in that area where I feel like that's not such a specific niche need either. You know, I think it's, I sort of tell people we don't need a special grocery store anymore for gluten-free foods, which is amazing, right? right? I love that right. my local grocery store has the whole aisle of gluten-free foods, right? So it sort of became this niche that I still enjoyed and had a good experience with and, and still really interested in. But in terms of like needing a, a point person, I think that's kind of faded away a, a bit, which is, which is good. Right. Um, another piece that came out was after a while when I was sort of, you know, beginning mid-careerness, it was this, you know, I was sort of having some issues like, wow, Five days a week, I see patients. This is a lot. What else can I do to um, do something else different with my time? And so I dove in a little bit more on the administrative side, business side in our practice and had a little bit of protected time for that. And then in my current position, which we can talk about too, was able to take more of a director role. So I have more protected time to actually do sort of deeper dives in topics that we feel just need some improvements or that we feel like we could be doing a, a better job in. So we have a few of those initiatives now. So like one of them is 2022 is a year of EOE. So we're really sort of diving into what we're doing with, with EOE, how we're treating it, what we're offering, getting a transnasal endoscopy program started, 
And again, a lot of that is just take, having the time and a little bit of the bandwidth and interest to do those deeper dives into things and dive into the research a little deeper, start talking to people out there a little bit more, making those connections. And then the most more recent one is with feeding and swallowing, which is actually one of the one of the things I went into GI for, like where, you know, when I was in residency, that was one of the big things I loved. Like everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're like the only resident ever who likes feeding clinic. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, but this is amazing. This is exactly, it's all the things, right? It's nutrition, it's feed, right. it's, 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 you know, it's behavior, there's tubes involved, there's scoping maybe, right? It's, <laughs> All, all these great things. And, and these things have such a great impact, right? This is such mm-hmm. an amazing way to make an impact on a large number of kids and families, in my opinion. And so, here, again, here in Portland, GIs had this very peripheral involvement at, at all the programs here. So um, there was actually an opportunity that came up in my current position in our development institute. They had some turnover and really needed folks to needed some more position leadership in that area. So we've really been, my colleague here and I have really been diving into that over the past year or so as well. So now I'm actually doing um, supervising feeding clinics at two locations mm-hmm. in town, really working super closely with our dietitians and our feeding therapists to really hopefully better coordinate our care, get more involved with our airway ENT folks, you know, sort of starting that slow road to sort of aerodigestive care. So that's been yeah, sort of the, one of the current projects that's going on now. And I, I feel like in my a little pearl of wisdom early on is just being patient with very slow incremental change. Mm, sure. <laughs> you know, when I was in private practice, when there's three people, you basically can meet in the hallway, make a decision, and that afternoon you move. Right. Um, versus, you know, being on a very large ship <laughs> as a direction and trying to change course. It is not a process that happens quickly, but if you are able to make those changes, you actually, you know, even one degree on a large dial is a, is a massive impact. So that kind of shift in my career has been really interesting as well. For sure. And that's a good segue because one of the questions we had to ask you is around that idea of maybe protecting resources, access to things and, and, you know, I, I also want to ask about this in terms of protecting procedure time, having access to procedures and investigations and things like that when you're working in private practice. But it sounds like for you, and, and I can imagine this would be true for a lot of people, one of the biggest resources that might be a challenge to protect is your time. So having protected time to work on non-clinical areas of interest, which may be tougher to do in that office of three or one. What were some of the logistical challenges or some of the issues that you had to navigate to make that work. Yeah, and I, I would actually add to that, it's not necessarily even time, but but I think emotional energy mm-hmm. is huge as well. For sure. And making sure that, that that cup isn't overflowing either. I mean, in private practice, you know, in the US, it's literally you eat what you kill, you bill for a service, you get paid for the service, that's minus overhead, that's what goes in your in your pocket. And so any time you spend not doing billable services is is money you're not making. So you're just making that decision on a personal level. And then, you know, depending on the size of the group, and we eventually got there where you may decide, hey, we're big enough, we can pool some of those resources together and then use some of that money to pay for someone's time back to do administrative things or medical directorship sort of things. But, you know, in a private practice, that's all very negotiated among people, you know, and your partners. And any money you get to do that is money coming out of someone else's pocket, which I think is a struggle especially for, I think, smaller, but even larger groups that are just purely, purely private practice and, and profit driven at the end of the day, that's not always an easy thing to convince people that is of value. But, you know, I think people will try to get what they can for the least amount they can pay for it, just like anything. <laughs> and so really being an advocate for, your, for yourself and saying, you know, here's something I think we need to do. We need to develop Here's what needs to happen for growth. And it's actually worth something. My time is worth something. And there's, you know, I think there's projects you can do because you just enjoy them and are passionate about them. And you may decide, hey, I'm just going to do this on my on my free time and I'm okay spending weekends and evenings doing that. I think you've got to be in agreement with that. I mean, I think those situations can be perfectly fine, but I think you've got to re- maintain your own agency in that, right? That's got to be a decision that you're okay with, not a decision you feel like you're stuck with. Because that's, I don't think that's just inherently fair or at all sustainable at the end of the day. For sure. And maybe just as a tack on, so is are some of those things that we've just been talking about, is that what finally motivated you to, to change roles? A bit, yeah. I mean, so a few years back, you know, I had this opportunity to exit from the private practice and take a job working for a nonprofit healthcare system, Providence St. Joseph Health, which is my current position. 
And part of that negotiation was making sure there was that time. And I think one of the things that made it a great opportunity was that model already existed there. So there was already a structure, you know, to say, hey, here's how many, you know, providers there are. There's the clinical directorship that is worth this much time, typically compensated at your rate of pay for your normal specialty. And then it sort of goes up from there. So it was already a system that was in place, but making sure I advocated for that time and for that title that gets you the time at the, at the end of the day. And I think it can be interesting. I mean, you know, here being in a large organization, there's a certain structure that just is and figuring out where, what in that structure is negotiable, which of it is not. So all of us based on our FTE or how much clinical clinical time we have, you know, there's a set number of hours you are expected to be working <laughs> like a job, you know? So how we divvy those up is pretty discretionary. So, you know, we sort of, for the most part, make the schedule, like, where is that block going to be? What day is clinic going to be? When's the procedure day going to be? Where do I have this many hours of clinic versus so many hours the next day? I, for many, many years have been of the mind that you don't deserve to see me on a Friday afternoon. Like you're just getting my B game. And so <laughs> let's, let's, let's be honest, you know, I could, yeah. I could have clinic Friday afternoon, but you're not going to get, you know, you're getting 92% of me at the end of the day. Right, right. Um, um, and I always felt bad leaving people hanging. You know, you say, oh, we should do this, 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 and this, but we can't do it because it's Friday at four. Always felt bad to me anyway. And then early on in my career, you know, when my son was really little, it was like, I, I would like the opportunity one day to like leave a little early on a Friday. It would be nice. Um, and sort of have just have just kept that going. So had some of that that flexibility, but you know, the work still needs to be done. So there still needs to be a certain amount of clinic hours that are scheduled. We're sort of lucky. And another reason why I'm really loving my current position is we do have some built-in time for just sort of quote work. So so there is some time that's just built in for everybody that is unscheduled, catch up, paperwork, phone call, my chart message, you know, those sort of just work time that's built in. And then we also negotiated because, you know, not all of our specialties have a big inpatient portion. Ours here, because we're at a smaller hospital, it's sort of plus or minus. It just depends on the day and the week. It can you know, we just had an IBD patient in for three weeks. So you're like, oh, suddenly I have somebody around on for three weeks. And some weeks we have, may have nobody. Or I think my record in one day was like seven inpatients. And so we have, we also chose to build in and we're able to build in some time for rounding that is separate from our clinic time too. So a lot of that was negotiating within those confines of what seemed reasonable. And again, having an organization that was willing to listen to that and respect that, that, that has been a huge piece. How much do you think that that flexibility that you have in your new role is also being a little bit more experienced and more senior, having some more like, you know what I mean, compared to being like when you're early on in your career. I just feel like even on the you know academic side, I mean, I'm only five years out from training. I feel like a lot of the junior faculty here also feel like we're just in this role. It's hard to carve out time, hard to protect time. We're just tasked with seeing so many patients. I mean, do you think part of it's like your career level now? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends so much on the organization. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the offers that I chose not to pursue or an opportunity I chose not to pursue coming out of fellowship was uh, an opportunity to be the first pediatric gastroenterologist in a, in a program. And so they basically were like, we likely you, we know you, we'll make a spot for you. What does that look like? Right. <laughs> we don't. We have no idea what your job looks like because we've never had one. So I would have had a lot of a lot of sway there, even you know, being brand new, um, right. just because there wasn't any institutional norms. So right. Our field, we work one day field. a week. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. You didn't know that. Uh, yeah, that, that that was not worthy lack of mentorship and being surrounded yeah. by people who are, you know, trying to create everything from ground zero. I just think it depends. Again, like I said, I think it just depends so much on the organization and yeah, and, and what their drive is and what their goals are. This organization I'm with just tends, you know, obviously they have a bottom line, especially now more than ever, uh, but that is not the main focus. I mean, this is a very charitable type of organization that is very mission driven. So they're more concerned about, are you delivering on the mission than are you bringing in the dollars and the hours? Like, right. and we always, we go back and forth, right? So the, you know, they're currently, the big thing is like, how can we think about access, right? Because they're like, we, we just want to help more people, which means we need to get them in to see you. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and they're like, how would we do that? You're like, well, I'd have to see more <laughs> that you clone me we invent space travel or time travel or i see more kids faster um so there's always that tension right and so i think it's a matter of where that tension ends right so if it's always 
the tension's on me and the pressure is always, you must do more, see more, get more done. That doesn't seem right. At the same time, right, we all can't, you know, take three days off a week and right. still get paid the same amount of money, right? There's just financial realities of the world and, and access issues that are a reality. So uh, I think as long as everyone feels like they're being respected and that there's that balance there and you're, you know, there's something behind just do more. Uh, I don't think that ever feels good to anybody. Uh, right. You know, I'm happy to to work and get kids in. And oh my gosh, if someone is in crisis and really needs to get in, like we get them in. Like I think we all have that mindset. You just do the work that needs to be done. But we also want our personal boundaries to be respected as well. Right. And I think it kind of goes to it's not just private practice versus academic versus community. Like every program is unique in its own way. And uh, those labels don't define like what your job's going to be. One thing, though, I, I think the other hosts also were very interested in, as well as us. One of the big things that I think for uh, maybe someone more junior, like someone in the academic world, is probably one of the big differences that stands out for private practice is like the pay and maybe how different the pay structure would be. I mean, obviously, every private practice is probably different to some degree. But what do you think are the main differences in pay structure between like a private practice model versus academic? Pandemic. <clears throat> and do you feel like, I feel like there's this stereotype that private practice, oh, you know, they must make more money than in academics. Like, is that true? Like, what is your view on that? Yeah, it's not true. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely not, not true. Uh, I think that myth there are busted. many, what's that? Myth busted. Myth busted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, people would ask me that question as I stick them out of trading. And I'm like, yeah, no, like there's not some magic pot of gold that's reserved for people in private practice. I think it really depends. And, and when you talk about compensation models, there are as many compensation models as there are jobs. And what I tell people is like, you've just got to understand what that model is. And does it make sense? And is it equitable? Um, you know, because you could have a situation where, uh, and I've heard of so many of these, you know, yeah, you could join a private practice and they'll say, you know what, we're going to pay you the 75th percentile, the 90th percentile, the 100th percentile for what we think you should make. And we're going to do that for a couple of years. And then you're on your own. And you say, oh, okay, that sounds like this amazing deal I'm going to make. I'm going to make bank and I got loans to pay. And Okay, great. And then at the end of the two years, they go, okay, well, you haven't been making your salary for the past two years. We've just been floating you. And so now that it's a, those two years are over, now you have this income crash. So is it sustainable? And again, if you have an organization that doesn't do a lot of pediatric subspecialties, the model to use is not the adult specialty equivalent, right? So, you know, adult gastroenterology is not a fair comparison to pediatric. And I've had people be in those positions where they're like, oh, wait, you're not doing like 10 colonoscopies a day. What's going on? Uh, you're not making what you should be making. You're like, yeah, I, I am actually in a different field. And that's not what says. Some of it can also be based, you know, and I'll say this one more thing, go back to conversation models, but just efficiency, right? So how efficiently can you deliver good care can vary enormously place to place, right? Can you do a solid, good new patient visit in 30 minutes and get everything done and provide the patient with everything they need, all the evaluation, all the education, the documentation, the resources. If you can do that, great, go for it. You're probably going to need a lot of support. I'm not sure if you're doing that well, you're not paying for it underneath with having lots of resources. If you're trying to do that quickly without those resources, you know, you're just working into the night, which is, again, not, I think, respecting appropriate boundaries. But so, so again, get back to compensation models. So, yeah, I mean, a, a pure private practice model would be you bill, you get minus overhead. I think that's probably a rare example these days. Most groups would have some sort of probably some buy-in where you have an associate track and then you are considered to be partner one day. And then there may be, depending on the organization, some sort of like profit sharing, right? So if there are other services offered by the organization, so like back when I was in the private practice, we did in-office infusions and a few other things that generated income, sort of more passive income. So there were billable charges not needing a provider's time. So then there was this extra bucket. So then you are sharing in that piece of it. Or again, rarely, and I think in pediatric gastroenterology, would you be talking about like having an ambulatory surgical center, you know, like a lot of the adult GI groups do, and then you're sharing in, in that. Those opportunities, I think, are just few and far between for pediatric subspecialties. Again, there are very large for-profit multi-specialty groups where that might be possible, depending, but it would be very, very specific to that organization. And you'd have to be really, really clear on how those things are actually 
divvied up? And how long does it take to be a partner? Is there a buy-in? Like, are you able to actually continue your income as you would expect, which you, they may not know or may not be willing to tell you? You may need to talk to people who've been down that road, people who've gone through the process, or maybe the people who've left and if it didn't work out. So yeah, and even academic jobs, right? I think every place you go is going to be even slightly different. You know, I, you know, I train in California. There, most people, I, I think, get paid by an they get an academic teaching salary. They get money from the medical group since you can't technically be paid by the University as a physician in California and all sorts of different models depending on different funding or grants or what else private funding you might have. I think it just varies enormously. Right. You know, and for us, we, you know, here we have a base, there's a, a bonus structure, which is sort of shifting in terms of what you do to get it. We now call it a value-based incentive, which is basically rewarding more quality improvement work that we do. That again, we do have dedicated time to do. So mm-hmm. it's not just on top of. If there's any sort of bonus structure, I think an important question to ask is, does anyone actually ever get the bonus? Right. So it's really, it's really easy to make a, it's a very attractive production bonus that no one ever hits, you know, right. um, make an RVU target that no one ever gets to. So it's kind of like those games where the clause gets the really cool prize. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. You could get the million dollar ring of tickets, but no one ever has, you know? Uh, and again, for us, you know, they've changed a little bit of the structure of it, but, we anticipate that everyone should be getting it. It's just to sort of say that this is part of the work we are wanting you to do. And it's just coming out of a different bucket. So it sounds like there's uh, as many different ways to get paid as there are jobs out there in in a sense. And maybe related to that is there's also a lot of different versions of private or community practice. You know, when you talked about the office you got started in, you clearly also offered consultation services at the hospital that you're physically attached to. And that's probably where you did your procedures and ordered your investigations, etc. Would you say that that's the most common setup is that there is that kind of affiliation with a mothership, if you will, or a local you know, community hospital that you would provide those consultation services to and in return also do your procedures or, or are there other models around that? I would assume so. I mean, I would guess there may be some folks out there who are doing pediatric gastroenterology without going into a hospital setting. I don't want to say that doesn't exist anywhere. I would say most often it probably does. You know, and again, depending on the geography, it's going to vary whether that's an academic institution, whether it's a for-profit, a non-profit organization. It's just going to depend what's going on in the area. Yes. I mean, you know, here in Portland, like I said, we have an academic institution and then two not-for-profit health health systems that, that do that. Other places will be, will be different. I think for us... I think most people are going to want to have part of their practice involved procedures and, and hospital care, which means being by a place that can support those things. Again, here, we were lucky in that there was definite institutional support to expand pediatric specialty services overall. So there was a lot of investment to building on the services they already had, which was inpatient pediatrics, pediatric ICU. Uh, we've expanded pedi- pediatric anesthesia quite a bit. We have pediatric OR uh, and increasing number of specialties. So there was definitely a an important institutional push to build those services. And I think there are places out there who are doing that as well for places that may not have an academic center or smaller non-academic hospitals, maybe looking to expand those pediatric services. I think it's also an important question to ask why, you know, what's what's the interest there? At my organization here, the short answer is they figured out that they actually provide the most pediatric care of any of the organizations in the state, but no one knew it because they have hospitalized, they have two NICUs, a pediatric floor, a pediatric mental health ward, they have a health plan. So they were providing all of this care to kids. But, you know, when you thought of pediatric care, no one thought of Providence. They thought of, oh, the academic institution or this, you know, the other community hospital. And they kind of realize that part of the mission, if part of our mission is to build this better world of better care and providing care to the the underserved and the vulnerable, which is part of the mission, wow, that should include kids, right? And wait, we already do that. We already do a lot of that work. We should probably coordinate it and build it and make it work well. And so even though I was, you know, sort of joining a small program, it felt very supported and integrated. I didn't have a worry that like, oh, they're just in this to make a quick buck, but aren't really going to provide me with those resources to do the job in a way that it should be done. So we still have lots of support. And again, this, this is how most of medical care, at least in the U.S., happens, right? It, it doesn't happen at academic hospitals. It, you know, it happens in for-profit or not-for-profit 
um, healthcare organizations that are doing this stuff every day. So are there still things, are there pieces that we still don't have that are just low volume that are probably not going to happen in the short term or may never happen? Absolutely. You know, there was a, a pretty firm commitment and I think there still is like we don't do open heart surgery. We don't do cancer. We don't do transplant. These are not things that the community needs us to do. These are not things that can probably, you know, that would really be properly supported. But we do tons of nutrition, tons of feeding, tons of functional things, tons of IBD. Like, can we manage an intestinal rehab patient? Yes. Can we, you know, keep all those kids integrated in our system with home nursing, home infusion, home pharmacy, all these things. Absolutely. But it's also about knowing where the the boundaries to that are too. And and then knowing what, where, where do, where do people then go, right? Where, who are your go-tos in the community? So if you're looking at non-academic place or even in an academic place, like you still may not offer everything, but Mm -hmm. who are then your go-tos? What's that next, what's that next level up? Yeah, I think that's an important message to get out there that the reality of community practice is probably a lot more similar than it is different in some ways to to academic practice in, in terms of the breadth of what is out there and what it means to practice in that way. Um, I think maybe people have a narrower preconception of what that might look like leaving the ivory tower. Yeah, you know, I, I think absolutely. I think we can provide in some ways really, really good care for some of these things because we are smaller. I mean, I literally message back and forth to our pediatric home health nurse multiple times a week if there's any issue about one of our home TVN patients, a line. She's just worried that this kid really is not tolerating his line changes anymore. What can we do? It's been a big shift. Like I'm immediately getting that message. I'm involving our psychologist in our clinic. I'm involving our child life team. And everyone is rallying around because the numbers are lower. Everyone knows these kids. They're personally invested in this care. So, you know, it creates an environment where it's very, it's still very responsive. It's very patient driven. But at the same time, I'm doing this in the same hospital that just started an adult heart transplant program, right? So there's still that level of care that's happening. And it's still, you know, a significant hospital in the region. But pediatrics is one part of that. It's not the focus, you know, it's not an ivory tower to children's healthcare. For sure. And then as we kind of get towards the end of the interview, <clears throat> before that you tell fellows at fellows conference that, you know, you would, that you should not take the job that you took when you came out of fellowship. So a couple, I guess a couple parts of this question. So what do you wish if you could go back and talk to that graduating fellow that you were before? What do you wish you knew before you went into private practice or community GI practice? And also like, what might make that like the right choice for a trainee who may be listening now? Like, what do you think is would would be the advantages of that for a fellow who's graduating? Yeah, and and I say that, and and then like everything, you know, never say never or always. I would think about a thousand times before taking that deal. I think there are situations that I and I know of some situations where a deal like that has really been the best fit. I think it all comes down to most people about people. So if you have a strong tie to those people, to that community, you are having ongoing, strong, mutually trustful conversations with a healthcare organization or with a person. I think that could be something that could work out. I think you just got to be really, really thoughtful about it. I think in my situation, it had those qualities. And so it did work out in terms of what was being offered. Like I said, the other, I think, fork in the road for me that was realistic was that other job where I would have been the only person. And that would have been a very different journey. So I'm not sure what that would have looked like to this day. You know, since then, that organization has developed a a program to some degree and is having success doing that. It just didn't seem like the right fit for me in that, in that moment. So yeah, it's not, it's not like those things can't work out. You just, just need to be really thoughtful and it, it really is a leap of faith and, and like everything, it comes down to people. You've got to trust the people you're entering into a contract with at the end of the day. And then, I mean, do you feel like there are certain aspects of a trainee that would you know fit better with a private practice or community GI practice or mm-hmm. I don't know, what, what, what do you think would be the right person going to that kind of job? Oh, gosh, I think it's tough because everyone, you know, has their individual strengths and their goals and how they feel about their practice. And I think this was true for me is that there certainly was not as big a mentoring piece as there would be in a larger academic center, right? This was not a place where we were having, you know, GI grand rounds and pathology rounds and journal club, right? This was not what was happening. So I think you've got to be comfortable taking a step back and and becoming part of a broader medical community versus living in, in that PGI silo forever. Yeah. 
Right, um, right. You know, so when there's, you know, we call it, the, you know, here we call it the pediatric specialties clinic. So there's two GI and three endo and one ID and two and a half neurology, right? And so I interact far more with non-gastroenterologists than I do with other gastroenterologists. And so you do have to take a little more ownership over knowing what you're doing, staying up in the field. The other thing I'd share too is just because you analyze the statistics yourself of the latest article that came out last week, that's okay. If it does not change practice, that's fine. Like I'm always looking for things. I mean, I get five, six journals a month. And I literally, it's less than an hour to go through them because how many of those are truly going to or have the potential to change my practice about something? A relatively very small number. And so I think you have to be okay with that of not being able to name drop the most recent article on whatever it is. <laughs> and, that, and that's okay. Right. Uh, and, and knowing that there's so many resources these days, you know, I mean, literally I can go to up to date through my EMR and I think about like the matrix. I'm like, I just downloaded Kung Fu, you know, I just downloaded <laughs> whatever obscure medical problem happened to come across you know, my clinic schedule that day. And that's okay. You don't have to retain it all in your brain forever. If you just know where to look and know, you know, have the, that skill and humility to pause and be like, Oh wait, I, I right. should check this. I should look this up. I should phone a friend or look that up. You're going to be, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And I think maybe one of the other things to to just throw out there is to have that as a something to explore during your training, right? To, to not have that kind of default path to continue on. Like you said, I was good at it, so I kept yeah. doing it. Um, not have that default path where, of course, I'm going to continue on in a, an academic center or an academic practice because there is this whole other world out there that maybe might actually be more suitable if you if you'd consider it. Yeah, I mean, and I think there are plenty of people. Again, these were these were not me, you know, who went into it because of the true core science of it, or really love medical research, or just learned to love it during their experience. That was that was really not me, you know. I think that has a great purpose, and I think it's part of our training for a reason. It doesn't mean it has to be the goal of your career. And right. I think there's just holding those two things simultaneously of what are my personal, professional, personal goals. And what do I have to do and what tasks do I have to accomplish to get there? It doesn't mean I have to keep doing those tasks forever, right? Right. Mm -hmm. They can be a means to an end and really trying to look back, I think, at, at my own motivations going through it, right? I, it's actually at home right now, but I still have like this little plastic polar bear that Sam gave me on my last day of teaching preschool in college. <laughs> so, awesome. so I look at that, right? I'm like, that's why I do this, right? right. So there's more Sams who are sitting out on the playground, having fun doing their thing and not being in a hospital or not sidelined from illness, right? That's the point. Not, you know, for me at least, right? So it doesn't really matter how long my CV is because that's not the point. Right. Um, doesn't matter what title I have or not because that was never the point. Great. Keep in mind what, what's important. Maybe on a related note, when you look back at your career so far, what what do you think has been the most valuable advice that you've received and, and what advice do you have for our listeners? I mean, definitely something that I feel and, and rightfully so, I think is getting more attention, but I think cannot be said too many times is having that ability to show up authentically, show up personally show up with vulnerability, but also maintain compassionate boundaries, right? We can be there for people, but we can also say, this is, this is where this is now ending, right? Our time is coming to a close. <laughs> we can take that up at our next session. That is okay. You know, and I think we all try to give our all, but you don't have to give everything. You have to save something for yourself, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first, however you want to think about it. But, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you've got to maintain that that internal drive, that internal peace, that internal energy that's going to allow you to show up for other people. That's great. Great advice. I love it. Yeah. Thank you again so much for joining us. I feel like it was awesome to get a different perspective. I mean, typically we talk to these people who are big researchers and focus on a very, very tiny area, but it's, it's important to hear that, you know, obviously the majority of us came into the field to take care of kids and, uh, you know, many people spend their lives doing that and never, you know, worry about research or things like that. And there's definitely that option. Before we let you go though, any final words for our listeners? More final words. Uh, <laughs> you, you're also you speaking. Can, speaking of your last answer, you can also say not really. <laughs> that is, that is an allowed answer. <laughs> I feel okay. I feel like this. When people ask you, you know, when you're when you're young, 
you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if any of us out there ever said, you know, like, well, I want to be a doctor, you are, you're done. So anything <laughs> for, you do from then on is completely up to you. What brings you joy? What brings you fulfillment? What you find is is your best place in the world. You're, you've already done it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's great. That's Pat awesome. yourself on the back. All right. Well, thank thank you again so much for for joining us uh, and and staying late. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for waiting for me. Guys. <laughs> Well, that was a great episode. Hope all of our listeners who had an interest in the area learned a lot more about what it's like to work in private practice or community-based practice and have a a better perspective on on that mode of practice. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and you want to support us, it would really help if you did one or more of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to discover the podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspigan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Happy New Year. Bye.